Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. Something a little different this time, as rather than having a professor as a guest, it's time for a prospective parliamentary candidate, the amazing Josh Babarindi from Eastbourne. So welcome to the show, Josh. Hello, thanks for having me, Mr. President. So before we get stuck into politics and Eastbourne, let's kick off just a little bit with your background before you got into politics, because you were picked by Forbes magazine, I think it is, for their Forbes under 30 list of leaders and entrepreneurs. And you've also been awarded an OBE. So what have you done to catch the royalty and Forbes magazine's eyes? Well, I'm still waiting for an answer. And to be honest, (laughs) they're wonderful accolades, but definitely things that um, have felt premature and so I mean my intention really is to spend the rest of my life earning them um, but what have I got up to before um, this awesome um, political endeavour well I when I was at university I studied political scientist I am a political science geek um, oh, so you're a future professor a future <laughs> professor <laughs> so say some and while I really loved that, I was frustrated by by where I was potentially going to end up going post-university. Lots of pals of mine got on to work in the city. They're loving it and good for them. That wasn't for me. And yeah, others are working in similar kind of industries, financial services sector, legal sector, blah, blah, blah. I wanted to do something that was more grassroots. And I then went to become, I volunteered as as a gang's intervention worker in the East End of London, running kind of employability programs and kind of career coaching and stuff like that to folks who are involved in gangs or who are at risk of being involved in them. And it was a really, really formative time, actually, in the development of my or just outlook on things, the development of my liberalism and like insight into some of the stark inequalities that plague patches, very large patches of our society. So off the back of that, I decided to, I wanted to do something about it, something even more intensive. So working in this patch of East London, I could see around us, Mark, lots of prosperity, tech prosperity around us. Fintech sector taking off in Canary Wharf to the north. Uh, You have uh, the Olympic Park where there's a robotics hub and stuff. Um, And then uh, to the west of us was um, Old Street and Tech City, Silicon Roundabout, but no means for the young people I was working with to seemingly engage in that tech prosperity. So I thought, how can I link those things together? And work is the key way to support young people away from crime and towards more positive futures. A lot of the academic evidence is indicative of that. And so I thought, okay, what tech-based thing can I upskill people in to support them on that journey? Coding was top of the list, pretty sexy skill. Problem is it takes a long time to learn to code proficiently, 180 hours apparently-ish. And that didn't meet the kind of instant gratification needs that a lot of the young people I was working with had. I've never learned to be a proper coder either. And I can absolutely sympathise with why it just is quite a steep curve from knowing a little bit to being able to do it properly, isn't it? Well, actually, steep is the wrong phrase. If it was a steep curve, it wouldn't take very long to go a long way up. The opposite in the sense it's a very, very shallow curve and therefore it feels really off-putting, doesn't it? Exactly. And it just didn't work for the young people I was working with. 
you know, they wanted results now. And so like seventh or so on my list was smartphone repair, screen repair. Mm. And what's interesting about that is 29% of people have a smash smartphone screen, according to a bunch of insurance companies. And you can make good money from repairing a, a smash phone screen, 100 quid profit or more in a bunch of cases per screen. You can learn to do it pretty quickly in a few days. You can undertake a repair in a pretty short amount of time. It's a tech-based skill. And there are a bunch of other reasons that made me think, yeah, on paper, uh, I think this could be the thing. The problem was I had no interest in phone repair personally, and I had no idea how to do it. But I'm a pragmatist and I will roll up my sleeves and do what I need to do to get to where I want to be and where I want to help take other people. So I watched lots of YouTube videos and roped some phone repair companies into upskilling me. And the result was setting up this little program, training a small group of the young people I was working with to repair smashed iPhone screens and then took them to Spitalfields Market in central London on the final day of this five-day program to sell their skills to the public. Yeah. And it kind of worked. Uh, it sounds like the setup for the next series of The Apprentice, the spin-off well, series, doesn't it? It? <laughs> it was based in some ways on The Apprentice. We actually met one of the candidates from a past Apprentice series oh, wow. who went on to do quite well, who went to the same school as some of the young people did. And so I connected with him and said, look, it'd be so inspirational if we could meet you. So we did. We went to see him in oh, Connecticut. So I thought I need to build some infrastructure around this so that we can do it again and again, bigger and better with more young people across more areas of London. And that is exactly what we did. And so this little one-off program became a phone repair company, Cracked It, London's social enterprise smartphone repair service staffed by young ex-offenders and young people at risk of offending. And what we did is we transitioned out the market stall, which had some real challenges, especially during winter time. Mm. Many, 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 many stories I can tell you about that. And instead took them to, uh, to the customer. So of those 29% of people with a smashed screen, three quarters don't get them repaired within six months or at all because it's too inconvenient. You've got to send your phone away or go to the high street. So we bust that barrier to inconvenience by taking the repairs into people's offices. We set up in lobbies, foyers, cafeterias, in Deutsche Bank, the US embassy. This was under Trump. Trump's embassy allowed us to come in with wow. folks who had convictions for wielding axes to repair diplomats' smartphone screens. And so we had you know, 30 of the biggest employers yeah. across town um, where we'd go in and repair uh, their devices. And it was our young people who we trained up who were doing that work and making money and transitioning into employment in the wider economy. And that was working fantastically until March 2020 when all of those big skyscrapers closed yeah. and they've not been the same so the company went walked off into the sunset which was a bittersweet kind of a shame bittersweet kind of decision and transition but we went out with a bang with a bunch of legacy projects that are still actually alive in other organizations which is fun and how did you because trusting people with your phone is quite a big step how did you find it trying to get people to trust, for example, an ex-convict with their phone. Was that a problem? Was it that they didn't know or that they were trusting? They could see that it was a fellow human who was there to help them. How, how did that work? Yeah, really good question. It was one of the earliest ones that I needed to find an answer to. And so I went to probably the most 
well, the best person in the country who I could have asked, which is James Timpson, um, who mm-hmm. runs the Timpson Shoe and yeah. uh, Shoe Repair, Key Cutting, etc. They also do phone repair in there. And Timpson, for those who don't know, employ it's about 10% of their workforce are ex-offenders. They have academies in prisons. I went to go visit one. It's incredible. And so I asked James. And um, is James the one who has been a Tory by-election candidate back in the early days of Cameron's leadership? Or was that someone else from the Timpson family? Edward Timpson. It was Edward, that's right, yeah. yeah. Is a Conservative MP and was the Solicitor General and Minister. Yeah. But yeah, James Timpson, as far as I'm aware, hasn't in, uh, yeah. engaged in in party politics in quite that way. Given his... the tenor of that by-election campaign, perhaps it's a good thing you went to James. <laughs> uh, but James is a great guy. And I asked him this question and he said, well, our uh, kind of brand and our approach is, well, we're proud um, of our ex-offender colleagues and we know that we offer uh, the best quality service. Mm. Uh, and so people should come and use our service, regardless of who's delivering it, for that reason. And if mm. they don't want to, then they can go somewhere else and get a less good service. I'm paraphrasing here, mm. but that's what I took away from that discussion. And that's very much what I applied in in, in my organisation. And there is there was no other smartphone repair service that was more convenient in our view than the one that we were offering and so when pitching to these organizations and we did it via their internal comms infrastructure they sent out emails and stuff to our booking system in advance of us coming the promo wasn't come uh, and use our service because you're going to be supporting someone away from crime the the promo was get your phone fixed faster than you would anywhere else and we did a survey with every person who accessed the service I think it's 58% of people chose to use our service on the basis of convenience and convenience. So it was a really, really fascinating time in in my career and absolutely humbling to be able to work with over 200 young people during that period. It was also important for my liberalism as well. I set it up in the shadow of austerity, which was having a pretty mighty impact on young people lots of youth centers and things closed and youth services cut etc which are the kind of you know the key preventative measures i think that we had or were among them and i wanted to do something uh, about that and it seemed to me at that point that i didn't have full confidence in the state to be able to provide what was required um I learned that it's not necessarily or it's not necessary to rely entirely on the state to provide uh, these kind of interventions. Um, And that actually you can harness the market by putting in place the right incentives and team, etc. And use the cash that you invest, that you gain from the market to invest into social impact outcomes. And the phone repair market in the UK is worth about two billion quid a year or was at the point that we were running. And no one had ever tried to harness it for the purpose of crime prevention. And um, so, yeah, I was really proud that we found a liberal solution and yeah, finding a good way of engaging with the market, but also working closely with state institutions to create something new, innovative that was creating value for consumers, but centrally creating value for society. They make having all of this impact and changing people's lives in a way that is, I mean, must be quite 
moving, given that the impact of helping somebody not fall back into being a criminal, actually helping them rehabilitate properly, the huge knock on impact benefit that has for the good. I mean, well, even as someone involved in party politics, I then have to ask, you know, why, why, why the switch to party? You know, given that you'd found such a successful way of making people's lives better, what was it about party politics that then made you want to get stuck into that and being a candidate? Yeah, well, I mean, on your first point, you're right. It, it was and remains moving to work with folks. And I tell this story from time to time who say, look, I don't want to be involved in all this criminal activity. I don't want to steal bikes. I don't want to deal drugs, but I do it so I can make cash to secretly slip into my mum's handbag week after week to help pay the bills and to help transition someone from that kind of lifestyle mm. to one where they are proudly creating value at the core of society rather than the margins and overtly you know giving mum cash to help her pay uh, the bills and not looking over one shoulder for police who might be after them and over the other for rival gangs that might be after them you know to help transition people towards that place of peace and freedom is extremely moving and I'm still in touch with a number of the young people that we worked with. And I was served by one of them in a bar, actually, not very long ago. And I didn't realise he worked there, which is wonderful. One of them was a toy demonstrator in Hamleys for a oh, period. Wow. That was utterly... That sounds like the sort of thing that appears to be a dream job, but it's probably really hard work in practice. <laughs> hard work, very hard work. Some steps forward, many steps back before more steps forward again. But I think part of the hardest work, and it links to your question about why politics, was around the systems that were at play. So time and again, I would find myself speaking to think tanks and feeding into policy consultations. And in some cases, you know, in government departments, meeting ministers to say, look, the criminal justice system uh, is broken. You're disproportionately uh, focusing on punishment over rehabilitation, which which isn't working. More than half of young ex-offenders are going on to re-offend within a year of coming out of prison. Or speaking to DWP minister about the benefit system and how many folk feel consigned to dependency and that work work not paying enough or speaking to think tanks about an education system that is over-excluding young people for whom formal education isn't quite working, and then putting them on what some of us in the sector refer to as the pupil-to-prison pipeline. This idea that if you're excluded from school, it kind of starts a long-term chain reaction that ends up in incarceration because of being excluded. And these are all systemic solutions or systemic problems that require political solutions significantly in order to alleviate a bunch of the inequalities and hardships that people are experiencing. And I kind of got sick of being on the practitioner lobbyists side of the table and increasingly decided as the years went on that I really wanted to be on the decision makers side of, of of the table so that's kind of where the you know political drive comes for me comes for me from a, a policy perspective um mm -hmm. but 
the journey really for me in party politics started when I was 15. Mm. I'm 30 now. And I, you know, was interested in politics. I'd got involved in student politics when I was at school. And when I did my A-levels, I had the chance to go to a university open day. University of Sussex is the nearest or one of the nearest universities to, to us in Eastbourne. And it happened to be Freshers Week and lots of the Freshers stalls out. And I saw a Conservative stall there and I thought, oh, cool, right, there's politics here. I definitely know I'm I'm not a Conservative, but I'd love to find the Labour stall because I know I'm a progressive kind of guy. And there wasn't one, but there was a Liberal Democrat stall. And I thought, well, I don't know very much about the party, really. But at the Lib Dem stall, there were some beer mats and they were quite cool. And I, I asked for one and they said, no, not unless you join. So I made Abby, Abby Fenton paid a pound for me to join. I got my beer mat, which I still have. And I then started being bombarded with emails one of them said, Nick Clegg, this is 2009, Nick Clegg's coming to Eastbourne for a town hall debate, come over. I did with a handful of pals. It was an interesting debate. There was a pretty xenophobic man sat behind me heckling throughout. And I had it out with him afterwards. And this town hall room started emptying. And it was just him and I arguing and my friends uh, kind of standing with me and then in comes Stephen Lloyd then mm. Liberal Democrat candidate for MP who went, uh, went on to win of course and he kind of broke up this debate we've met a couple of times before he remembered my name which I was impressed by and his message essentially was Josh don't get mad get even here's my card come and help me campaign little did I know that come and help me campaign meant delivering soggy leaflets in the rain and knocking on doors and speaking to strangers, some of whom weren't always pleased to see me or a Liberal Democrat or any politician on the doorstep. But uh, I got to meet the local Lib Dem family in Eastbourne who were and remain awesome. And I got to learn more about community politics uh, and this gospel of find out what people want say what you're going to do about that do it and then tell people uh, that you've done it and then repeat and I thought that was utterly simple a process requires a lot of hard work and I have found uh, a tribe that is willing to do that hard work then when I went on to kind of university and read up on political philosophy studied it in more detail read a lot of John Stuart Mill John Milton etc and was really sold on a bunch of principles from you know but the beer mat came first beer mat first on came first i'm not gonna lie mark the beer mat came first if it wasn't for the beer mat i would not be here Uh, i i i i'm gonna be grievously disappointed the next time i hear you speak at a lib dem conference rally if you're not brandishing your beer mat (laughs) i'll do my utmost if i get another slot i'll dig it out and i'll bring it and you've you've touched on Eastbourne a little bit in what you've said, but I, I'm because I think our paths first sort of crossed online when you were selected as a Lib Dem candidate for London Assembly election. So what was it that sort of got you into being a candidate in Eastbourne? Yes, so I was I was a candidate for the general in 2019, Bethnal Green and Bow. Oh, sorry, um, yeah, that's right, the general election, yeah, yeah, and 
Uh, I mean, at that point, I was my organisation uh, was based there, and the Tower Hamlets Borough in Eastbourne was in East London. Sorry, was where a lot of our work had taken place. It's where the organisation was founded. Eastbourne came into the mix. Well, when I was born, uh, born in Eastbourne District General Hospital, and grew up in Eastbourne, went to local schools, many local schools. There's a running joke in my local party in our big activist WhatsApp group that every time someone goes canvassing, you're going to meet someone who went to school with Josh or who <laughs> Josh or something like that. There's always Eastbourne is such in a wonderful way, such a small town. We're like one big village, you're only a, a degree or two separation away from from anybody, which if you haven't got any secrets is fantastic. Fortunately, I don't have any secrets. And so yeah, grew up in Eastbourne and my my family, my mum is from nearby, she was born in Brighton. My dad grew up in Eastbourne, ended up here through very extraordinary customs, really. In the 60s and 70s, there was a custom for African and Caribbean families to move to London, study at university and ship their kids off referred to as farming farm your kids out to often white families in seaside towns mm. and my dad's older sibling was his brother farmed out to family in Eastbourne that lady was pushing you know this black child around in a push chair in Eastbourne in the 1960s everyone was looking thinking what on earth is going did. on I, I so want to go you know digress into the sort of 60s history of Britain because that must have been I mean, not only <clears throat> does that prompt a whole set of questions about why the farming out was being done, but also the recipients. You know, that must have been. I mean, it's it's quite a thing even now in that sense to take on, you know, looking after someone else's child, but to be taking on looking after a black child in a predominantly white community in the 1960s, that was so I, I would imagine certainly not an easy thing very often for people to do. I think it came with its risks for sure. There's a documentary <clears throat> um, made recently about farming. It was like a documentary film a couple of years ago. And some of what that tells as a story is some of the trauma um, that, that some experienced. I mean, there were some places, I think it was South End, where there were foster families who took on farmed out children who were targeted by you know far-right groups and things and yeah there were you know bricks thrown through windows and violence and all that kind of stuff quite traumatic for some in Eastbourne certainly in uh, my family's experience my dad ended up being farmed out as well to Eastbourne that that didn't happen um Eastbourne and this is one of many reasons why I love my town Eastbourne rallied around the likes of of, of my dad and the reason my dad ended up in Eastbourne is because someone saw this other lady walk around with this black baby in in a pushchair and asked what was going on got the explanation and then said I, I want one <laughs> and that one was my dad and how intriguing because I think amongst the people who are sort of interested in politics and particularly people who sort of follow the Lib Dems you know Eastbourne has always been one of those slight exceptions in that it's a much more heavily Brexit supporting area than you know, most places where we've had parliamentary success. 
And in addition, it's got, you know, quite, or at least it has the reputation for, and I think the census stats back this up, for quite an elderly population. And just the nature of demographic change in the UK means that an elderly population is also more disproportionately white. Mm. And so this is a story of, you know, almost a sort of of multicultural liberalism that one might expect to be being told about, you know, one of our cities. And so what is it about Eastbourne that you think sort of reconciles those two potentially very different ways of looking at the community? Stereotypical ways, I know, but but how, how do you think they come together in reality? Well, I'm so glad you've asked that question, because part of the reason I tell this story is to bust the stereotype that that because Eastbourne in one referendum in 2016 voted to leave the European Union, you know, by by 58%, to bust the stereotype that that must mean that Eastbourne is a closed and intolerant uh, place to be. Far from it. I mean, Eastbourne's got a, a, a classic reputation as being a kind of hospitality town, and, you know, we get lots of tourists come. We're the sunniest town in the UK. Haven't got that in yet. And and actually, Eastbourne's, you know, tradition of hospitality, for me, and history tells us, goes far deeper than just being a place that hosts visitors mm. for holidays. It's a place that, yeah, served as a, as a beacon of, of multiculturalism in the 60s, where there were a number of, of families who farm natives out to Eastbourne, and has remained so, because uh, you've got folks like my dad, for whom Eastbourne has, has become, you know, his like total home. My dad, when he, you know, he grew up entirely with these families, and then moved out when he was 18. My dad now still lives in the flat, um, that he moved into when he was 18 years old he still lives in that community in Hamden Park Mm. still close with the family that raised him or that he grew up alongside and you know back in the back in the 80s my dad he tells me and so do the photos tell me was like the guy he ran these New Year's Eve parties that were the place to be at his little housing association flat on the first floor and all of the different stories you get you go around every every corner and my dad will say oh yeah that happened there there was a fight in that corner there you know uncle so and so well this happened there all this kind of stuff and I often when I go out and about town I was in Primark the other day actually looking at the t-shirt and there was a lady who worked there who from the other side of the of the kind of counter I just popped her head up and I just saw her eyes and she looked at me I've never seen her before knowingly and she said your dad was in here the other day and I thought oh (laughs) oh, yeah my dad loves a bargain (laughs) and so do I and she was one of the ones who went that must be quite spooky (laughs) it happens all the time you're making Eastbourne definitely sound like a village in that respect everyone knows everyone it really is it really is but but all it all you know that serves that fuels if you like this story that we're telling entirely true story that Eastbourne is a place that has historically embraced multiculturalism and I see it in the way that my family was accepted I see it in the way that um my experience of of Eastbourne you know yes I was often you know the only brown kid in in my class 
in a bunch of the classes that I was in and a bunch of the schools that I was in. But I was no less Eastbourne than anybody else. And I see it now when, you know, to be going around speaking to people uh, week after week at events on the doorstep, everywhere in between. And, you know, certainly as far as I'm aware and my team are picking up, you know, there, there isn't a big discussion about race. There isn't a big discussion about, oh, well, you know, could 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 Eastbourne elect an MP of colour? Could that happen? That's not the talk on the doorstep. You open the door and people say, oh, yeah, it's Josh. Uh, he's Eastbourne born and bred or my kid went to school with Josh or et cetera, et cetera. And so our town really is an open, welcoming and tolerant place to be, to live, to work, to visit. And I won't let any referendum result or anyone who seeks to spin that referendum result take that away from my town or from mine or my family's experience of, of the town. And you you touched on that issue of, sort of ethnic diversity. And obviously that's an, an area where the party in general has struggled a lot over the years and our record is not nearly as good as it should be. For any party, but particularly a party that espouses the values that we do. Mm. And so if you are elected, fingers crossed, when you are elected, as you will become, hopefully, the party's first ever elected Black MP. And I just wonder how you feel about that, because certainly people I know or read or heard about who have been in other positions of potentially being the first ever dot, dot, dot often have slightly mixed feelings about that because there can often be a pride and a sense of determination in achieving that but also not wanting to be pigeonholed and only seen through that one lens so how do you feel about that is that something that is particularly important to you or you just you want to be known as the best MP that Eastbourne has ever had with Stephen Lloyd maybe muttering from the background about well you know which of the two of you are better or or is that an accolade that you particularly uh motivated by wanting to achieve yeah it is such a complex question but a Mm. fascinating one i mean we should start by saying that there are giants whose shoulders i definitely stand on in pursuit of whether i like it or not that that accolade of if if elected being our first MP of Black Heritage, elected as a Liberal Democrat. And two particular people I want to draw attention to are Chukura Muna and Sam Jima. Both of them, Black Liberal Democrat MPs, both of them sought to be elected as Black Liberal Democrat MPs, but of course didn't quite, didn't make it. And yeah, something that does make me uncomfortable is that at the moment, if you want to be a a Black Lib Dem MP, (laughs) the best thing to do is get elected party and defect (laughs) so I want to put that right and how do I feel in terms of that the pressures that that potentially comes with and what that might mean for what I talk about and what I stand well I absolutely talk about racial diversity and I absolutely stand for racial equality however I also um stand for my town that I know that I love my town I've spoken a little bit before about how 
Um, I had some really difficult patches in my childhood. Lots of things happen at home, uh, domestic violence and abuse, etc. Mum's wonderful, dad's wonderful, current stepdad wonderful, other folks in between less so. And it is my town, whether it's teachers who've believed in me, scout leaders who've challenged me, businesses who've taken a punt on me that have rallied around me and made sure that I've had the opportunity to go and do lots of things I want to do. And I want to give back to the town that made me me. And I want to see my town thrive. And that means, especially in the context of our current you know, big campaign priorities, that means you know, addressing the cost of living. Eastbourne's got the busiest food bank in the country. More food parcels distributed in Eastbourne per head than anywhere else uh, in the country. We need serious support on that. We're not getting it uh, from the government. The NHS, uh, the hospital that I was born in, published a report fairly recently that said that the existing state of its buildings do not lend themselves to a consistently safe standard or delivery of care words to that effect we were promised a brand new hospital by boris johnson one of the one of the 40 and there is no sign of it that is something that i'm talking a lot on and then of course the sewage 94 gorgeous beaches in eastbourne blighted by the likes of southern water who are dumping tons and tons and tons of sewage along the coastline uh, and blighted by a government that lets them get away with it And so it's really important for me to, one, talk about those issues too, and to not be pigeonholed into the diversity box any more or less than anybody else who is also passionate about diversity, but also has some key campaign issues across a bunch of different uh, policy areas that they want to pursue uh, and advocate on. And in terms of, you know, there was another part of your question, like, what does it mean uh, to me? I mean, it would be a, a serious um, achievement to be able to do it. It would mean a lot to me, though, to be able to show to other people that it is doable, to show to other change makers in their communities who might be considering politics as a way to make that change, and who may be entertaining our party as a home to drive that change from, I want to make sure that they believe that it's possible. And if you see that it's possible, then your chances of that belief are are greater. I mean, that's part of the reason in Eastbourne, my particular patch that I'm from in Eastbourne, Hamden Park, is one of the most, in inverted commas, deprived parts of the county, And I go in and speak to schools about some of the stuff I've got up up to, setting up a business and being able to go to university. My parents didn't go to university, uh, although my mum actually has just started a social work uh, degree. I'm very proud of her after starting that. Um, And I go back to show them that if you dream big, work hard and get the right support, then anything is possible in our town and someone like you can do it. The key reason I'm in politics is that getting the right support bit and making sure in line with our liberal philosophy that everyone gets the opportunity to get the support they need to go as far as their motivation, their spirit, their talents will take them. Shouldn't be screwed over by bad luck, which is completely out of your control. We've talked very little, actually, about the current 
state of the Liberal Democrats and current politics and so on, which has been fascinating, really, really interesting. But maybe let's squeeze in a couple of questions around that before we wrap up. So as a as a prospective parliamentary candidate, I guess having come into this with such a level of experience in campaigning and lobbying out well outside party politics first and then from and that the different perspective that one gives about how best to bring about change. What's mm. most sort of surprised you about having picked the the would-be parliamentarian route to try and bring about change that way? Is being a PPC what you'd sort of expected it to be or is it turning out a bit different? Yeah, to to a great extent, I, I saw my one of my absolute political inspirations, Stephen Lloyd, my predecessor as the parliamentary candidate here and um, MP for Eastbourne for seven years. I saw um, his uh, candidating and MPing um, up close. Mm. Uh, and so I knew to um, a fair extent what kind of uh, stuff would would be involved. But he did often say, Josh, you have absolutely no idea. <laughs> and now that I am certainly in those candidate shoes, I completely see where he was coming from. I think something that has surprised me has been just how just, well, there's an activist side and then there's a, a residence and community side. From a resident side, I find it really extraordinary just how how much so many people are kind of banking on me to win mm -hmm. and not just banking on me to win, but banking on me in this position now to deliver what they are crying out for. In some cases, literally, I have my most recent surgery where well, I hold them uh, every month and my most recent one was absolutely chocker. Um, and people coming with all sorts of challenges and some particularly complex issues that not only they want my help on, but they really, really believe that I'm the guy to do it now. And I think there's a there's a real challenge of expectations management. And what I say to everyone is, look, I can't guarantee the outcome that we want here, but I can guarantee that I will absolutely throw the kitchen sink um, at it. I would expect that to be pretty similar on the other side of an election should the result go the way we want it. But for people to come to their Lib Dem PPC some months or maybe even a year out from an election with such faith and confidence is really humbling, but also a lot to bear, a big burden to bear, but in the most really touching and humbling of ways. And then the other side of things is on the activist side. We have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of volunteers up and down the constituency who deliver leaflets, knock on doors, help with our website, stuff envelopes, write envelopes, bake cakes, all sorts. And these folks are doing it. They're not paid a penny, nor am I for what it's worth. And they're doing it because they're passionate about their communities in some way, shape or form. They're passionate about our town. They're passionate about changing the country. And they believe that I'm the guy to do it. And again, that is humbling, a big, a big responsibility to to carry. And I I didn't it I really, really feel it. And that's something that before I started doing this, I I didn't anticipate just uh, what that feeling would be like. Uh, but boy, is it a, an awesome one. And I'll I'll mention one last point on that subject of 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 pay and 
and just being able to live uh, as a candidate. I think that we need a solution um, for this, not just in our party, because it's something that affects all parties and not just in our country, because you find this across a bunch of democracies. Candidates play such an important role in scrutinizing the incumbents and in offering people a democratic choice, never mind the campaigning and all the casework and everything um, that comes with being a candidate. And in the vast majority of cases, candidates, the role of a candidate is a voluntary one. And a challenge that creates is it can mean that unless you've only, unless you're the kind of person who has certain means, uh, you can't do the job or you can't do the job to the extent that you would really like to do it or that you know that your community needs or wants you um, to, to do it. Um, and I think that our democracies are missing out potentially on some really talented um, political talent as a result of having not found a way as a set of institutions to to support people who don't have the socioeconomic means to to do this 24/7 role and so i am i've experimented with with a bunch of things to see how i would be able to crowdfund in in my case a stipend to help me live and through friends and collaborators i've been able to do some of that really helps that helped me to quit my day job I still do some freelance stuff uh, at the moment but that helped me to quit my day job which has meant that I've been able to be front and center of everything uh, in our campaign um, this year and I'm determined that whatever the result of the election here in Eastbourne is that I will play a critical role in trying to put that right in British politics and I want to find a way. There are lots of folk who have cash who want to see great talent in our political system, regardless of party. And I want to play a role in convening that resource around some great talent to make sure that we can unlock it. And I will do that from within the House of Commons if I win. And I will do it from outside should it not go the way that we want it to go. That is really good to hear because I think you're absolutely right about the the huge, I was going to say filtering factor that is, but filtering in a sense sounds like it it necessarily raises the quality, but it isn't. It's a it's it's a it's a filtering factor that restricts who can have a real go at wanting to be an MP, not on the basis of their quality or their talent or their dedication. So yeah, I in feel fact, a bit... it filters out quality. Yeah. In, in, in a bunch of ways. And you look at our political system now, which many would say is broken, and you look at some of the people who are responsible for managing that political system, and I think many of us could say, well, yeah, I know someone who could probably do better. And there are a bunch of people chomping at the bit, but you just do not have the means. So this is about restoring quality or indeed finding quality that we might have never had before. That's what true democracy, I think, is, is about. Current system inhibits it. Let's bust it. Now, I'm in a dilemma as to whether to ask you my final question or not, because it is so trivial by comparison. But I'll go for it anyway, um, whilst acknowledging absolutely the importance of, of what you've just said, because you were also responsible for perhaps the most memorable photo op from our Bournemouth conference, where you went kayaking with our party leader and our chief whip and tipped them both into the sea. 
Now, the word on the street, of course, is that the press office deliberately put you up to do this to make the photo op even more memorable. Would you like to clarify for the record what actually happened? What I can share with you, Mark, is that they both knew that they were going to get wet. (laughs) I will simply add to the listeners' confusion over what really happened by saying when I met Wendy shortly afterwards, she didn't seem... She had completely expected the turn of events that had happened. So we will, listeners will have to work out how one can reconcile those two pieces of evidence that we have in front of you. Well, we made we made a splash in every way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's been absolutely fascinating uh, talking with you, Josh, and really impressive what you've achieved outside of politics. And let's hope that is something you will be able to continue within Parliament after the general election. Anyone who is interested or inspired by what they've heard from Josh and think, I now want to stalk him online, you can find him on Twitter or Instagram at Josh Babarindi. And you can find myself on Twitter at Mark Pack or on threads at Mark Pack UK. And do look out in the show notes for follow-up links to what we've discussed. And I'll see if I can find a photo of the kayak incident to include. So thank you everyone for listening. And thank you so much for coming on the show, Josh. Thanks for having me, Mr. President.